All right, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. The rest of us go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one on a seat semi near you. Might have to look around just a little bit. Definitely grab one if you can find one. Romans chapter 7. We're in a uh, a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans, if you haven't been with us or if you're newer. Started in verse 1, chapter 1, and just letting God, uh, through his word, dictate what we study next, one passage at a time. And we are in Romans chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 13 for our next passage as we uh, really continue and ascend in our time of worship through the hearing and the study of the Word of God, Romans chapter 7. And uh, while we're turning there, just welcome to all of you. Good to see you, especially those of you who are newer. Thank you for joining with us. It's a joy for us uh, to have you gather with us for worship this morning. Romans chapter 7, the title of the message, How the Law Shows Us Christ, Our Need for Christ. Well, whatever you think about God, to think rightly about God, you need to think that he is a savior. He is a saving God. If we're going to think correctly about him and not make up an idol, he's a savior. First Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, God our savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. Titus 2.13 says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Christ Jesus. Titus 1.4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. To think rightly about him, if correct thoughts are going to pop into our mind about God, we need to think that he is a saving God. Micah 7, turn there, Uh, keep your pencil in Romans or whatever, turn to Micah 7. As we let God's word and not our opinions or whatever it might be, inform the knowledge and the worship of God. Micah 7, verse 18, who is a God like you? Who forgives iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance because he does not hold fast to his anger forever, because he delights in loving kindness. He will again have compassion on us. He'll subdue our iniquities and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That is fantastic news. God is a saving God. A couple other passages, Isaiah 43, 25. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, the Lord speaking here, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 52.10, God is a saving God. Isaiah 52.10 says, Yahweh has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. God is a saving God and praise him for that. Of course, when we think of that, we need to think saved from what? Saving to save always means to rescue from some predicament. But the question is, what is the predicament? 
Now, now look over at Luke chapter 10, something interesting from the words of Jesus himself, the Savior. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, Luke 10, 25. So this is Jesus in a, in a chatty discussion with some of the religious leaders. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and behold, a a scholar of the law, or sometimes called a lawyer, these are people who studied the law of God, like the, the first five books of the Bible, the commandments, and stood up and was putting him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What a question. Don't you wish people would ask you that question? How how do I get to heaven? Would you tell me? This is what this guy is asking Jesus. How do I get to heaven? I wish people would ask that more. And there's a reason they don't, which Romans 7 will clarify in a minute. But look at Jesus' answer. Look, Look what he says. Verse 26, and he said to him, what is written in the law? Huh? This guy asks him how to get to heaven, and Jesus, who is the Savior, fires back what's written in the law. What does it say? How do you read it? Verse 27, and the guy, because he studied the law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, he answers and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul, all your strength, with all your mind, your neighbor as yourself. Those are, those are the two ways to sum up all the Ten Commandments. Love God perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly. And verse 28, Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. In other words, you've answered correctly what's written in the law. And then he says, do this and you'll live. Verse 29, but wishing to justify himself. Justify means to declare himself right before God, flawless before God. He said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? What I want us to see here is something interesting. God proclaims himself as a saving God. Christ the Savior, that's that's one of his titles. A savior means someone who rescues another person from a predicament from which they can't rescue themselves. Like Coast Guard going way out into the storm to rescue a sinking ship. More importantly, the people on the sinking ship are about to die and can't rescue themselves. That's, that's a, the act of being a savior. So if Jesus is the savior and a guy comes to him and says, how do I get to heaven? Why does he, why does he say, what does the law say? Why does he say, what do the commandments say? Why is he saying that? Because that's like saying, save yourself. Here's the list of, of stuff of how God says what it means to be a good person. So he's in effect telling him, do these things so that you can save yourself. If he says, what does the law say? It's sort of like saying, here, here's how to save yourself. But I thought Jesus was the savior. Why does Jesus break out the commandments? 
and the law to a guy who's asking how to get to heaven. A lot of people in our day, even, even professing Christians, think that if you talk about the Ten Commandments or the law or talk about obedience to God, that you're like some stuffy, archaic legalist. That if you talk about God's commands and God's moral code, which is what the commands are, that, that you're some unloving, graceless legalist. Now, to be sure, you are if you're saying, that's how you get to heaven. So is Jesus a legalist here when he starts talking about, what, is it, what do the commandments say? What does the law say? What's the purpose of the law? What, what, is, what are the Ten Commandments for? Why do we have those? And why does Jesus read those to a dude who's asking how to get to heaven? Is that how you would respond to the question, how do you get to heaven? M- many today would say, well, recite these words after me and pray Pray to ask Jesus into your heart. Interesting to me that Jesus doesn't say, ask me into your heart right here. I find that fascinating. What is happening here? Romans 7, 7 through 13 is going to break it down in an interesting way. Follow along as I read. Turn back over to Romans 7 if you haven't already. Romans chapter 7, I'll read verse 7 through 13. God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word reads, Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Rather, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. That gives us a clue what Jesus is doing right there. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, worked out in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Verse 9, now I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived or came alive, your translation might say, sin revived and I died. And this commandment, which was to lead to life, was found to lead to death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by working out my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. I have recently endeavored to uh, teach my girls how to fly fish, except the problem is I don't know how to fly fish. Uh, I grew up fishing, deep sea fishing off the Oregon coast as a kid. Uh, and one thing I've noticed, and, and if you want to extract some humor out of a situation, you can come watch me attempt to teach my girls to fly fish. 
But one thing I discovered even this past week is when you're attempting to fly fish, at least a, a, a novice of novices like me, when you're trying to cast, you, you get a lot of knots. And half of my time, if not more, is spent, oh, another knot. I actually hooked myself the other day. That was, my girls are, you know, uh, untangling these knots. When I first approached this passage to study it, it is like, wow, this is a huge knot here. And this is going to, at least it appeared to me as so. And to untangle this and see what's going on. So this is what we're going to attempt to do, to kind of glean some light on what Jesus is doing. As Jesus, to many contemporary evangelicals, would appear as a legalist. If you were to say, hey, one book out of the 66 books of the Bible that I should really know, that I should know really, really well, Romans would be that book. Why is that? Because it lays out and untangles for us the single most important thing that you need to know as a human being who's, you're like passing through a revolving door your time on earth here compared to eternity. The gospel of Jesus Christ. All scripture, of course, is profitable. All 66 books. But if there's one you really want to nail down and know it really, really well, it would be this one. Now, as we read that passage, just a couple of verses, uh, you saw two words appearing often. The law and commandment, those are synonymous, and then the word sin. Like every other word is law, sin, commandment, sin. It seems like, oh my goodness, that's overbearing. How is that supposed to give me encouragement this morning as I'm trying to battle it out here in life? The word sin appears 10 times. The word law or commandment appears 11. So you get what's happening here. But there's a great, encouraging, and very important thing happening here that Jesus knows about. And Paul obviously knows about as God used him to write this. He begins this verse, still a little bit of a background here as we're easing on in, dipping our toes into this passage. Verse 7, this this chunk, he begins it saying, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? That's what launches him into the rest of what he says in verse 7 to 13. Why, Why would he say that? Why would he say, is the law or the Ten Commandments, is it sin? He's asking a rhetorical question. Is there something wrong with the commandments? Is there something wrong with this immutable, unchangeable moral code that God gave in the Old Testament? Something wrong with it. Why would he be saying that? Because, in case you haven't been with us in Romans, basically since the beginning of Romans until now, Paul is making the case that the law has never been and will never will be. Since Genesis 3, never will be a path you travel to get to heaven. Many people think that, that God lays out these commands, and if I could like hoops, if I can just kind of, being so awesome that I am, kind of chuck myself through these hoops, well, I'll, I'll waltz right into heaven and God will give me a Gatorade dumping as I launch myself through the pearly gates. Is that what the Ten Commandments are for? That's not not what they're for. And Paul's been nailing that case down through Romans. And so as he's writing about mid-first century, you have to understand that people from a, a very Jewish background who, in some sense, rightfully so, 
held the commandments and held the law very high. And they did think of it as sort of hoops to kind of navigate through. And they hear Paul saying the law is not the way you get to heaven. Obeying these commands is not the path you travel to to strut your way into glory. And so they're hearing that and they're thinking, are you saying then there's something wrong with God's commands? Are you saying something's wrong with the law? Right? When we say the law, when, when, we're, when he's using the word law here in commands, it's interchangeable. You just think of it like the Ten Commandments. We'll talk about those in a minute. They're, saying, they're accusing Paul. You're, so you're saying something's wrong with the law. I remember Paul was a very educated Old Testament scholar before he bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and was saved. And so Paul starts here in verse 7. Look there. It, is the law sin? Is something wrong with the law? May it never be. May it never be. In the Greek language, that was the strongest way to negate an accusation. A thousand times, no. No way. There's nothing wrong with the law. And so now what he's going to do in the rest of this passage, in verses 7 to 13, he's going to launch into giving us four, four essential ways that the law shows our need for Christ, or bigger picture, 37,000 feet, four very important uses of the law. But for our outline, uh, let's, let's, let's say four essential ways the law shows us our need for Christ. And this will answer the apparent conundrum that we observed in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 27 with Christ doing evangelism. How do you evangelize? How do you share the good news of Christ crucified with those who don't yet know him? That's how Jesus did it. Why did he do it that way? Four uses or four reasons why there's nothing wrong with the law. In fact, it's essential to show our need for Christ. Each of these outline points, all four of them will will capture some characteristic about God's law, why it's so important. And why people who say things like, well, the Old Testament, we don't need that as much anymore, they're wrong. And to say, and people who say, well, it's legalistic to talk about, you know, obeying and laws, they're wrong. If that's true, then Jesus is, was the biggest legalist that ever, live, ever lived. But he's actually a savior, the savior. Number one, very simply, Number one, the law makes us aware of our sin against God. And all of these points end with, because we need to go to Christ, not stop mid-sentence, so that we would receive Christ as Savior. Or if you've already done that, so that you would treasure him more as Savior. The law, number one, makes us aware of our sin against God so that we would receive Christ as Savior. Again, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? These Ten Commandments, reminder what they are. Number one, you can't have any God except for for God, the true God, meaning no other religion, no other faith, which makes sense because God is God. Number two, don't make an idol. Don't put anything above God. Don't make an idol of your comfort. Don't make an idol of your hobby. Don't make an idol of everyone liking you. Don't make an idol, an idol of no one bothering you or, or your appearance or whatever it might be. 
Don't put anything above God ever at any time. Number three, don't carry God's name along with you. Speak it, take it in vain, in an empty way, a meaningless way. Fourth, keep the Sabbath, which that's fulfilled in Christ, which is why the early church recognized that and began to work to worship on the Lord's Day, Sunday. That's the only one that's not repeated in the New Testament. The law is still in play, but not in the way that this guy in Luke, back in Luke 10 when Jesus thought it was. Honor your parents, number five. Number six, you can't murder. Number seven, you may not commit adultery. Number eight, no stealing. Number nine, no, you may not lie. Number 10, you may not covet. And remember, as we've been observing in our study, that there's three things about this that are very important to understand about the law, God's commandments. First, whatever, with every you shall not, there's a you shall. You shall not covet means you need to be thankful constantly to God. You shall not commit adultery means you need to, in your thoughts and in your deeds, reserve God's design for sexuality in the only place that it is to be observed. That's monogamous marriage with someone of the opposite gender, and you're born with your gender, and there are two. Three, three, these are to get to heaven, or let's just say it this way, God's command is that you would keep these constantly, perfectly in thought, word, and deed. And if you're going to get to heaven by attempting to be a good person or the law, that's how it has to be done. Okay? So external, not just external, not, God isn't looking to paint dead flowers. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27, if you even think a lustful thought about someone else, you're, you're an adulterer in your thoughts. If you hate someone in your heart, you're a murderer in your heart. Jesus says that. Matthew 5, 22, Matthew 5, 23, 27, and on and on it goes. You might not bow down to a, podum, a, a totem pole, but do you bow down to to your hobby and to what people think about you. That's an idol just the same, right? We get it. Ten Commandments. So people were saying, okay, if this isn't, Paul's been saying, this isn't the way I don't keep these to get to heaven, is something wrong with it? Verse seven, on the contrary, nothing's wrong with it. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. So he's saying the law then functions like a diagnostic Right? When you get the check engine light on in your truck, check engine light comes on, you, you might take the truck down to the shop and they have, some, they have this fancy computer, they plug it into your truck and it's a diagnostic and it says like your O2 sensors are bad or you have a misfire or whatever it says. That diagnostic can't fix the truck. Just like the law can't fix you. The law just declares loudly what's wrong. Like the diagnostic declares loudly, bad O2 sensors, misfire, something is wrong. That's the function of the law, and that's cluing us in to why Jesus uses the law when he evangelizes. And Paul uses an example. It's interesting that he picks coveting, right? He picks the last one. Pay attention to the whole law, he's saying. Coveting. In other words, being continually thankful to God in all things, which, by the way, is repeated, isn't it? 
in the, in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians 5. Give thanks for all things, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In other words, don't covet. Same thing. All right, number two. The second essential way the law shows us our need for Christ, it incites, the law incites our desire to sin. The law incites our desire to sin so that, again, we would be driven to receive Christ as Savior. The law incites, inflames, stirs up humanity's desire to sin so that we would receive Christ. Verse 8, this is another essential function of the law. Look at verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, worked out in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. What's happening here? But sin taking opportunity through the commandment. Now, when he's talking about sin, he's not saying something outside of me, environmental circumstances that force me to do something that I'm not already. He's talking about our fallen nature inside of us. Paul isn't blame shifting. So, okay, what does it do? Look back at verse 8. It takes Taking the opportunity through the commandment produces coveting me of every kind. The original Greek word there of, the, of opportunity, taking the opportunity, it has the idea of favorable circumstances. Favorable circumstances in which something would occur. Favorable circumstances for what? Look back at the text. To produce in me coveting of every kind. So here's what it's saying. That my fallen nature inside of us that we all have ever since our great-great-great-grandparents since Genesis 3, our fallen rebellious nature, that's a favorable circumstance so that when the law comes and confronts me, when God's moral code comes at me, I get stirred up. Saw this a little bit last week. When we hear about God's law, our fallen nature wants to break it. I remember when one of my daughters was little, two-ish, she was sitting in her high chair and had a plate of short pasta with tomato sauce and chicken. And some of the food was intermittently being launched off the high chair, and, you know, hitting the wall and hitting the carpet. And it was just, just like, oh, that's interesting. And so I look at my daughter I won't tell you who she is. Um, I asked her permission to share this. I said, Charlotte, please, please do not throw your, your you know, spaghetti chicken off your, your high chair. It's meant to be ingested. And right away, she grabs a tomato, a piece of chicken, looks at me in the eye and goes, whoa. And I, what's, what's fascinating about that anthropological phenomenon is that I never taught her that if I give her a command, the particular one there would be honor your parents, right? I never taught her that if I give you, if I give you a command, get stirred up to want to disobey it. I never taught her that. The nature inside of her when the law confronted her. And we're all like that. Don't walk on this concrete. Well, there's something inside me. I want to throw a rock on that concrete. Private, do not enter. Right? Well, why not? I, I should be able to go in there. What are you hiding from me? 
You know, do not cross this line and walk in the sand. You know, that, that freshly raked sand. Don't walk on the grass. We just, that stirs us, incites us to want to, oh yeah? When God says stop, we want to hit the gas. When God says go, we want to hit the brake. This is a natural thing in all of us. We all know this if, if you're being honest with yourself for more than five seconds. So sin inside of us, taking opportunity... It produces these favorable circumstances to get produce coveting or whatever it is of every kind. This Greek word opportunity was also used in ancient times to describe a military base that was set up to, from which, from which a, a, an army would launch an operation. And so it's saying that our hearts are kind of like a military base. And when something good ha- comes, not bad, but good, like God's commands, you know, be humble, receive this. When it comes, our heart is like a military base getting stirred up to go on the offense, to go into action. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? You're telling me what to do? We're going to launch an offense and come at you, is what it's saying here. And someone says, hey, don't do that. Our natural response isn't usually, you're right, who am I? I I deserve to go to hell for breaking God's commandments. I shouldn't do that. We want to say, well, who are you? Do this. Someone says, do this. We say, no, what do you mean? Don't tell me what to do. That's not an evidence of us being good, as some psychological theories would say, or even neutral. It's the opposite. And it's not the law's fault that we break it. Right? It's not the line's fault that you cross it. The line is just there. God's law is good. It says in verse 8, sin taking opportunity like a military base, like a military offensive. Sin through the commandment. The commandment comes, worked out in me, covenant of every kind. It stirs us up is what it's saying. And we saw that a little bit last week. In this final phrase in verse 8, look at it. He says, for apart from the law, sin is dead. It's not saying, well, there is no sin like if you don't hear about a law. It's just emphasizing that the law is like kind of dormant, excuse me, that sin can be kind of dormant in us at times. It can seem like, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. But when you're faced and someone comes at you with the right command or God comes at you with the, with the right law, that'll launch you and wake you up back into action. In other words, our sin nature. We ought not to deceive ourselves. And again, all this is so that we would see how wretched we are to drive us to receive the Savior who loves us so dearly. And you can't get to Him without that. Number three, the third essential function of the law, how it drives us to Christ. Number three, the law exposes, the law exposes the natural human tendency towards self-righteousness. The law exposes the natural human tendency towards self-righteousness. The law exposes the natural human tendency towards self-righteousness, found in verse 9. In other words, the law shows us that as as a, a race, we tend to overestimate our moral ability and our moral quality. We tend to kind of overthink it a little bit, thinking we're better than we really are, in other words. Look at verse 9. 
Now I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived or came alive and I died. Now, first what this can't mean, this verse is a little tricky. He says the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Died, not referring to physical death, but separation from God. It's not, obviously, he's not referring to physical death. He's not saying that he wasn't fallen before he understood God's commandments. It's again, it's this clearing up some, clearing up some wrong thinking about himself. He's, it's bringing, in other words, he's saying the law brought clarity to an error I and every other human being tends to make because of our fallenness. I was once alive apart from the law. In other words, he's saying before I really understood God's law, before I really understood God's moral standard, I I thought I was morally, spiritually pretty great. I I thought I was a pretty good person. I I thought that, you know, at the end of my life, because I I wasn't like Stalin or anything, that that old St. Pierre would be there and and bust open the pearly gates for me and I would kind of walk right through because I was a pretty good person. And Paul is saying in verse 9, I was dead wrong. He's talking about the natural human tendency towards self-righteousness. Human nature tends to overestimate, if we're left to ourselves, our, our goodness. If you surveyed 10 people on the street, 100 people, I promise you the majority of them would, 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 start, talk, would start out telling you about their first place ribbons in life and not their falls. They would start out, they would tell you about, well, I've been pretty decent. I'm a pretty good guy. And usually when you strike up a conversation with the average person, they don't start telling you about uh, an argument they had with their wife, a shameful thing they once said to their kid, an unloving remark they did to their, to their roommate, they don't start that way. They, they're going to start telling you, I think God would let someone like me into heaven. Because humanity tends, has a tendency towards self-righteousness. I was once alive apart from the law. In other words, prior to my eyes being opened to how holy God's standard really is, what God really is saying in the commandments, which is what Jesus clarified in Matthew 5, 22 and following. Before that, I was drunk in my own self-righteousness. In reality, I was wretched. What happened? Verse 9, when the commandment came, sin revived or sin became alive and I died. When the commandment came, he's not talking about when the Ten Commandments were written but when it came into my life and it came into 2020 vision in my heart, I realized, oh, that's the standard. When he stopped with the delusion, thinking that the Ten Commandments were nice suggestions for those really bad people out there, but I'm really a good guy. He was for the first time confronted with God's standard. Turn over to Philippians 3 real quick. And... and, and by the way, as you're turning there, this, is, this, this spot in Romans, you'll notice Paul is saying, I, I, I realize this about myself. 
He's being very humble here. He's coming alongside of us. He's not talking over us. Because Paul's saying, look, I'm in this too. I was deceived about thinking how great I was also. And so in Philippians 3, this is a fascinating passage where he actually shares his testimony a little bit, part of his testimony anyhow, in reference to his tendency towards how he was so self-righteous. Philippians 3, verse 4. Look there. So Paul's talking about his self-righteous resume, how great he used to think he was before his eyes were opened to the standard of God's law, and then he put his trust in Christ. He's talking about how he used to brag before that. Verse 4, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, in other words, in my own doing. If anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. In other words, he's saying, you think you were a good person? You think you were, had like moral qualifications in a fallen way? I much more. And then he gives, he lists out his resume. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, that was the best tribe to be from, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. The Pharisees were like the highest achieving, quote unquote, they didn't really, but law keepers, praise themselves for it. As to zeal, how zealous was I for, for the law, a persecutor of the church. Paul killed Christians, threw them in jail. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Blameless, not in the sense that he really was keeping it, but in his own eyes and the eyes of his cronies. He was like a hero. Right? So whatever your subculture is, you know, sports, recreation, uh, a banker, whatever it might be, you substitute in the things that everyone praises and wants to achieve. That's what it was for Paul. That's what Romans is talking about in Romans 9 when he says, before the commandment came in. In other words, before it came into 20, before I really understood the standard, this is how I was functioning in my delusion. He used to congratulate himself in his mind when he read the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. He would congratulate himself in two ways. Well, I only kill those who, who are these Christians because they're against what I'm against. And then he realized what he had done. And he used to pat himself on the back when he heard the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. He said, I'm, I'm faithful to my wife, as many of the Pharisees were. But then he realized what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27, even a, even a lustful thought, you're an adulterer. And Paul was shattered. And Paul used to congratulate himself in his mind when he saw the eighth command, don't steal. He said, I've never walked out of a the marketplace without paying for something, ever. And then he realized in all his boasting and all his high view of himself, thinking how great he was, he was stealing God's glory every second of his life. He was constantly robbing God of glory as he was patting himself on the back for thinking how great of a person he was. And Paul came to that point to, that every single person must come to if, if you want to go to heaven and be saved. That we're dead in sin. That the law absolutely exposes us as wretched, lost, and guilty. And you can't go to heaven until you get there. Look what, look what Paul says in Philippians 3. Look how he concludes this. 
But whatever, verse 7, Philippians 3, 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, he says, verse 8, I count all things to be loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. The Greek word means sewage. I count them sewage so that I may gain Christ. In other words, Paul says, I came to that point that he's writing about in Romans 7, 9. The commandment came alive. The commandment hit me that I'm a thief. I'm a coveter. I'm an idolater. I worship myself. I brag and think about how great I am in my mind and I congratulate myself. I'm an adulterer, a murderer, a liar. I'm all of these things. And his sin was awakened in a fury like, like a mama bear, a mama grizzly being woken up and find out she's robbed of her three cubs. His sin, he finally saw it. That critical point through which we all must pass if you're going to enter the narrow gate and be saved. The law shows us we're not as great as we thought we were. It's like a person, imagine someone who buys a home and they've They've kind of superficially gone through the home and, oh, there's fresh paint on the walls. There are newly installed windows, brand new carpet in the rooms. This house looks amazing. And then they move into the house. And then later they smell something and they hear something clawing and they smell a putrefaction. And they go underneath into the crawl space and they see rats and mildew and cracked foundation everywhere. This is the point Paul came to and that everyone must come to if you're going to be saved and put faith in Christ. We're a superficial look at the law just outwardly. I'm not Hitler. I don't kill anybody. That's like the house that has paint and new carpet. From a distance on the outside, it looks good. But when we realize the standard of God's law and we look underneath the house, it's like, oh, I'm not getting to heaven by my works. And it exposes our self-righteousness. This is what Jesus was doing with the guy in Luke 10, 25, when he asks how to get to heaven. And he says, what does the law say? He wants to bring the guy, not because Jesus is a legalist, he wants to bring the guy guy to see how self-righteous he is. That he's totally deceived. That he's an idolater, worshiping himself and worshiping his ability to keep his rules and worshiping the praise he gets from his subculture as other people who are into this false works-based righteousness are congratulating him. You're, you're good, good job. And Jesus wants to just shatter that because God is love. And because the sick man won't lay himself down on the operating table until he finally admits and sees through tests and scans, oh, I actually am about to die if I don't have this surgery. I'm not as healthy as I thought I was. And only then will he lay himself down on the table and say, heal me, physician. This is how it must be for everyone to enter the narrow gate and to go to heaven. Matthew, we must come to the place where Jesus says in Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, you know you're bankrupt morally. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn for what? Mourn how far, how far they have fallen below God's standard. 
for they shall be comforted. You'll be comforted because it's then that you will grab for Christ and that you'll reach for Christ and Christ will never look so good as when you come to face reality that the law has shattered you. That is when Jesus really becomes, when we begin to see him truthfully and we say, I must have Christ. There's something interesting this verse tells us as well. It clarifies what, self-righteous, what self-righteousness is and what it is not. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what self-righteousness is and is not. The term gets thrown around carelessly. For example, person A might accuse person B of self-righteousness if person B believes there is a moral standard that person A doesn't like. Well, you're self-righteous. That's so shallow. That's not at all what self-righteousness means. Romans 7, you can turn back there, Romans 7 clarifies that the self-righteous person is not the person who is convicted over their sin, who is sensitive to God's standard. It's not the person who realizes how much I've broken God's law and then talks about how how they want to trust in Christ and obey God's law. That is not self-righteous. Self-righteousness is the one who doesn't really think they're that sinful. The self-righteous person is the person who, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I'm better than, than most. I could probably get to heaven if, you know, if God looked at my record. I'm not that bad. That is the self-righteous person. In other words, to themselves, they are righteous. And that is only what self-righteousness is. They would be offended. The self-righteous person is offended at the idea that they've absolutely, flagrantly broken God's law continually through their whole life. The self-righteous person is the one who hears that and is offended. They have a high view of themselves. They, they hear about Jesus and they get more excited about the, the Rocky Road ice cream they're going to have when they watch their goofy TV show after dinner. Yeah, Jesus is good. He, he was a good guy, a little better than me. Instead of clinging to him and white-knuckling him because I know that the law has never been and will never be the way I can get to heaven because it just shatters me and shows how sinful I am. Only then will a person reach to trust in Jesus as Savior. Jesus didn't come to like, save us from low self-esteem. Uh, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pagan idea of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to you know, help us when in February when we don't see the sun for 28 days and our vitamin D is low and we're kind of discouraged to help us feel better about ourselves. Uh, certainly he can do that. Jesus came to save us because by the works of the law no one will be justified because the law like a diagnostic just yells loudly broken 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 this is how evangelism is to be done friend how did Jesus evangelize he breaks the law out what does it say how you doing with that Not good. Not good. Finally, number four. By the way, it's interesting that in Jeremiah 23, 6, Jesus is given a nickname. Right? Remember that passage? He's given a nickname in Jeremiah 23, 6. 
What's his nickname? The Lord, our righteousness. Why is he given that nickname? Because we have zero righteousness through in attempting to obey the law. The law just shows us we have zero. And so the good news falls, Jesus' nickname, Jesus is our substitute for righteousness so that we would not function under the delusion of self-righteousness. Finally, number four. The law, number four, another important thing it does, it unmasks humanity's worst self-deception. The law, number four, unmasks humanity's worst self-deception. The law unmasks humanity's worst self-deception so that we would receive Christ as our loving Lord and Savior. This is found in verse 10 and 11. Look there at verse 10. And this commandment, which was to lead to life, was found to lead to death for me. Verse 11. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. What is he talking about? He's talking about humanity's worst self-deception. If you were to ask, what's the worst deception among the human race? Here it is, 2,000 years ago, written for us. Verse 10, look there. What's he talking about? This commandment, talking about the Ten Commandments, God's moral standard, was to result in life. In other words, he was thinking that the Ten Commandments was a list he could keep such that, like, like rungs on a ladder, I could climb. Each commandment was like a rung on a ladder, and I could climb my way into heaven. It was to result in life, eternal life. That's what he thought. But he was wrong. Look at verse 10. It proved to result in death for me. In other words, the commandments were actually not rungs of a ladder. If I was super moral and like a moral Olympian, I could pull myself up. It actually, they, they showed that I'm dead, spiritually dead. I'm done. I'm crushed. No way to get to heaven on my own. That's what it's saying in verse 10. It proved to result in death for me. Now look at verse 11 again. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Deceived, to trick. What was deceiving? Notice verse 11, sin deceived me. And to thinking what? Exactly what he said in verse 10. The lie that I could be a good person, number one. Number two, that I could be good enough for God and God's standard and keep the law. And number three, that the, the pearly gates would bust open and, and I'd waltz right in because I was so moral. That lie. He said, sin was telling me that, but it was a lie, it deceiving me. Until I woke up by God's grace. Have you woken up, friend? To the worst deception among the human race. That if I did a decent job keeping the commandments, not that I could, a decent person when I died, enter eternal life. There are lots of myths out there in the world. Many tend to believe if you touch a frog, you'll get a wart. Myth. You get warts and viruses. That if I go outside with wet hair, I'll get the flu. Myth. Flu's a virus. Or my favorite in Jackson Hole, that in the fall and the summer, if the bees build their nests really high, it means we're going to have a huge winter and get tons of snow because the bees know and they're, you get the idea. But of all the myths out there, the one in verse 10 to 11 is the absolute worst because of the eternal consequences. I'm a good enough person. 
I'm a good person before God compared to God's law and I, I got what it takes to hop, skip, and jump my way into glory. No. Uh, that's, a, that's a deception from your own sin. And the reason people like me used to do that until God graciously saved me out of the gutter, we do that because the nature of sin is self-worship. So we create and fabricate a standard we're comfortable with and how convenient we're able to make it. We're able to achieve that. Isn't that convenient? You know, that's like at the Olympics. Okay, we're going to put the bar at seven foot, whatever. And a guy comes along, well, I can't jump that high, so I'm going to make it like four foot two so I can make it over and give myself a medal. And no, it doesn't work that way. You don't create the standard. The law unmasks the worst form of self-deception among the human race. You could ever come close to moraling and working your way into heaven. And this is when Jesus begins to look so good. If you don't understand why he is such a great savior and you don't think about him a lot, maybe it's because you haven't come to terms with what Jesus is for, why he came. If you're able to be a good person on your own, why in the wide world of sports would Jesus come down and die and have the nickname, the Lord our righteousness? Or maybe if a person you love isn't understanding why they need Jesus, maybe you need to give them like Jesus did in Luke 10, 25 and following, a little more law, a little more diagnostic. So then verse 12, so Paul concludes the law is holy. There's nothing wrong with it. The commandment is holy. The Ten Commandments are holy. They're righteous. They're good. They're a reflection of God, of his standard. Nothing wrong with them. Only things wrong with us. So then, like a guy who's been standing on your oxygen hose when you were in the hospital unable to breathe, pulling his foot off it, <gasps> we get air when we see Jesus after seeing how condemned we are by the law. And we grab for him. And he becomes more important and more lovely to us than anything in the universe. Because, number one, all the law does is shows us I'm guilty of sin. And because, number two, the law incites my already fallen nature to get stirred up and say, who are you to tell me? And because, number three, the law shows that I tend towards self-righteousness, not towards clinging to a righteousness, Jesus himself, outside of me. And because, number four, Jesus looks so good because... I, like the rest of my race, tend to operate in the greatest myth and deception ever that I could ever be a good person before God, that I could ever get my way into heaven by my works. As it was once said, I think it was Adrian Rogers said, you're going to be able to climb a rope of sand to the moon before you're going to be able to work your way to be a good person and get to heaven. So we come back full circle to what Jesus said in Luke 10, 25. Why does he get bring the law to that guy? So that he would despair of himself and look to Jesus. And I pray that we all would do that and be freshly encouraged and trusting and resting in him today.
Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus, the Lord, our righteousness. Because we have none. And it is a myth and the most dangerous myth in the world that we have any merit or any righteousness to offer you. All we have, Jesus, is sin. But we thank you, as you said in Matthew chapter 9, you have not come for those who are well, but the sick. And you not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thank you, Father, that you demonstrate your own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ has died for us and he didn't stay dead and rose from the grave. Oh, Father, help us to value the law, even though it crushes us, to show us how it is such a helpful shove into the nail-pierced arms and the hands of Jesus Christ. I pray none of us would leave here without bowing the knee of our hearts to him. And that we would go this week with a full blast breath of fresh air, the air of Christ. Not the law which just diagnoses us and yells out, condemned, condemned, dead, eternal death, lost. But Christ, who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. May we trust in him And Father, help us to go this week in all the battles and blessings of life, looking to him, running the race with our eyes fixed on him, in whose name we pray, amen.